puzzle? There's no chalk. How are we going to do this? There's chalk. Um, so the little puzzle was, what is the next number in the sequence that begins 0, 1, 2? The answer is there are an infinite number of possibilities, right? This is the fundamental theorem of analysis. Um, but one in particular is 720 factorial, which is a number which is roughly equal, very roughly equal to 600 to the 720th power. Um, that is to say an extremely huge number. Um, I actually typed it, I didn't type it out once, I copied and pasted it out once. Um, I went to a website where you could, where they would um, construct large factorials, um, and then I put in the commas, which really took a long time. Um, and it was, uh, what was it? I think it was 1,400 digits long or so. Um, nice. so. So basically 0, 1, 2, and then a 1,400 digit long number. And the question is, so how do you get that pattern? Um, and the answer is, um, so what you do is does you everyone know what factorial is? Just, yeah. okay. Yeah. You take, everyone does. You take the factorial of the, so to get the nth term, you take the factorial of n, n times. Right. So because zero factorial, or, well, rather. Um, no, you don't have to do zero factorial. Yeah. You have, you have the number zero with zero with bangs zero, after right. it. Right, yes. Then the number one, one with one bang after it. The number two with two bangs after it, and the number three with three bangs after it. If you try to plug that directly into Wolfram Alpha, it will get different results than you're expecting because um, there's a double factorial operator which is not the same as factorial yeah. twice. So you have to use parentheses. Yeah, you do. But no, yeah. yes, thank you. That's true. And but four factorial, 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 factorial is way larger than the universe could possibly fit. Yeah, um, way larger than the number of quarks the universe could possibly fit, fit, even if densely packed with quarks. So, it's big. Okay. It's big. It's really big. What? But infinity is so much bigger. Yeah, infinity, not only is infinity bigger, but busy beaver numbers are bigger. Much, much bigger. Hugely bigger. The tiniest busy beaver number is a number that there's no notation for. Um, okay, so um, remember what's on your take home, which is due, when did we say it was due? When? Yeah, the 19th or something. Is that the last day of exams? No, no the 21st. Oh, the 21st, right. Okay, so the, yeah, so it's due the last day of exams. Email it to me or put it in my box. If you um, are doing diagrams and um, you're not so happy with how your word processing programs um, do diagrams, you can scan it. Yes. Um, so you could write it out by hand and scan it. The main thing is closed book, closed internet, closed um, ears, don't talk to your friends, closed eyes if you need to close your eyes. If your roommate comes dancing in with the various <laughs> proofs scrawled on some whiteboard or some slate and says, look, 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 close your eyes. Um, um, and that's going to make the writing pretty messy. Yeah, well, until your roommate leaves. Um, it shouldn't take you that long, um, but the point is, um, look, you can ace this if you understand it. So understand it first and then ace it. Yeah. Sam. So when you, 
is it like we, we should try to get an understanding of it first and then do it in one sitting, or after this class are we not supposed to? Like, like no, no, no. You can do anything you want except for memorizing. In other words, don't memorize a spiel which you don't understand. Um, people could do that, but that would, that would not be the right thing to do. Um, it would be like memorizing a sentence in a foreign language um, and not actually knowing what the sentence means, but knowing that you can say it if you need help or something. So that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is learn the foreign language, but this is a very easy language to learn, um, or it's only a tiny bit of that foreign language. So the two things, and um, I'm willing to spend a little time going over them before we um, go on today, because there's just like the rest of infinity to do today. Um, but the two things you want to do is to prove that the square root of 2 is irrational and to show that the number of reals between 0 and 1 is a larger order of infinity than the number of rationals between 0 and 1. Or another way, I mean the proper way to put that is to say that the set of rational numbers between 0 and 1 is a smaller set than the set of real numbers between 0 and 1. So how many people want to see, the, again, the proof that the square root of 2 is irrational? OK. Um, do, you guys, it, do you guys want to, especially those who raised your hand, what you should do is you should be answering um, questions and saying what to do as we do that. Kenny showed it to us. I showed it to us. Um, other people have done so, but let's do it again. So we have a number, the square root of 2. We want to know what does that equal, okay? We want to know what it equals because if you have an isosceles right triangle, which we'll pretend that is, um, we want to know what the ratio of the hypotenuse is to one of the sides. That seems like a perfectly reasonable question to ask. Um, how much longer is hypotenuse than one of the sides? If this side is um, n and this side is m, then what does m over n equal? Um, it's just not such a hard question. So we say m over n, or we can say a over b. What does that equal? Seems a reasonable question. So, we want to know, we know from the Pythagorean theorem that it equals the square root of 2. But that's all we know. So what we're actually asking is what does the square root of 2 equal? That is, what's the ratio of hypotenuse to side in a right triangle? So, we say the square root of 2 is a over b. So if we have, again, a right triangle, a righter triangle, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should stick to Moby Dick and write whales. Um, if we, yeah. Um, so when we are writing this down for a thing, can we assume that the person we're explaining to knows the Pythagorean theorem? Yeah, I'm still trying to make this vivid for you. You don't have to talk about triangles at all. But again, we're just asking a simple question. What is the ratio of A to B in such a triangle? Okay? Um, where this is A as well. So what is the ratio of A to B in such a triangle? So we know from the Pythagorean theorem, easy enough to prove, that A squared equals B squared plus B squared. That is the 
square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the sides, right? Like a 3, 4, 5 triangle, everyone knows. 9, 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. 9 squared plus 4 squared, I mean 3 squared plus 4 squared, 9 plus 16 equals 25, which is 5 squared. So we know that the hypotenuse is going to be a squared plus b squared, which is to say that if you square the hypotenuse, so far you don't need to be worried too much about this, but if you square the hypotenuse, it's going to be twice the square of the sides. Okay? So now we're going to take the square root of those things, and we are going to get A equals the square root of 2 um, times B. If we say that the length of a side is 1, then we will get that the hypotenuse, just take a triangle whose sides are one unit long, and we will get the hypotenuse of such a triangle is going to equal the square root of 2. Okay, this is all preliminary, but this is just what's driving Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans to ask this question, is they want to know how long the hypotenuse is. So all of this is preliminary. So now, we're going to examine the square root of 2. So you can forget, you don't have to forget, I would prefer you didn't, but if you like, forget triangles at this point. And let's just look at the square root of 2. So if we say that there is a number, a over b, which is what the square root of 2 equals, we will then square both sides, and we will say that 2 equals <coughs> what? a over b squared, which, which equals a squared over b squared. Okay? So that's what 2 equals, a squared over b squared. So, if 2 equals a squared over b squared, we will now do very simple algebra and multiply both sides by b squared. So we will get 2b squared equals what? Equals a squared. That's the Pythagorean part. So 2b squared equals a squared. Now we're still looking for this number here, a over b, and we're going to put that number in lowest terms. Okay? We're going to simplify it into lowest terms. What does it mean to simplify a fraction into lowest terms? What do the two terms not share except for the number 1 if you simplify a fraction into lowest terms? Yeah? A common factor. No common factor. So if you simplify a number into lowest terms, there is no common factor between a and b except for 1. What that means is if a is uh, is even, b must be odd. Otherwise, they would share what factor? 2. If b is even, a must be odd. Otherwise, they would share the factor of 2. So we know that the choices are, we don't have to go into this much detail, but I'm just going to do it so you can see the possible ways of thinking about this. We know that a and b could both be odd, or that a could be odd and b could be even, or that a could be even and b could be odd. 
But because we've reduced, for the simple reason that we've reduced, they can't both be even. Okay? So now we would like to know whether they're both odd or whether only one of them is odd. Okay? That's just that's a question we, we, we ponder, we wonder, we lie in the bath thinking about it, we float our soap and we put a little coin on top of our soap and we yell, Eureka! Because we figured something else out that is of no relevance to, the, well, it's of some relevance, but not much relevance to this class. But we figured it out, that's good. Um, but we want to know, are they both odd or not? So now we look at this equation, and what do we know if a and b are integers? And that's what we're looking for. If a and b are integers, what do we know about a squared? It has a factor of 2. Why? It's Amanda. Equal to b squared times 2, which is yeah. 2. So we know that this number, 2b squared, is an even number. We know it because we see its factor, 2. Whatever that number is, it's even. Whatever b is, b, as long as it's an integer, b squared is also an integer. If b squared is an integer and you double it, you have an even number. Therefore, we know that a squared is an even number. Okay, we're doing this really by baby steps. So if you, if you think we could jump some of these, you're right, we can, but we don't need to. Okay, so everyone sees that 2b squared is an even number. Because a squared is another way of writing that number, that's what the equal sign means, another way of writing the number, that means a squared is an even number. Is there anyone who doesn't see why a squared is an even number? Okay, so a squared is an even number. Now, we're going to ask ourselves, if you have an even number that is the square of some other number, can you square an odd number to get an even number? Now, you will say immediately and rightly, no, you can't because an odd number doesn't have two as a factor, and you will be correct. But we will show that in more detail simply by taking the form that any odd number has, which is an even, every odd number is one more than an even number. Even numbers and odd numbers alternate. <clears throat> one is odd, followed by two, which is even, which means the next number, three, you don't even have to calculate, is what? Which means the next number, four, don't even do the calculation. Even or odd? Yeah, we go even, odd, even, odd, even, odd. That's how the numbers work. So we will therefore say any even number is a number with a factor of two. We can write any even number then like this. And we've done this over and over again in this class. We can write it as 2m, where m is any integer from 0 onwards. So if m is 3, 2m is? Six. <laughs> God, you guys are fast. Um, and 6 is odd or even? Even. Take any integer and double it, and you have an even number. It's a great party trick. 
you can just say to people, I can give you an even number. Give me any integer, and I can show you how to turn that into an even number. Okay? So you take any integer and double it, and you have an even number. People were so surprised when I told them that at the party. I mean, they just really impressed with me. Yeah. A lot of friends. <laughs> All right. So if 2m is an even number, how do you get an odd number out of that? You add 1. So every odd number has the form, we don't need the parens, but I'm going to put them in, you'll see why for, in a second, has the form 2m plus 1. It also has the form 2m minus 1. That is, go down from any even number, and the number before it is odd. Go up from any even number, the number after it is odd. Human beings, because we're an optimistic species, always prefer addition. So we'll do it as 2m plus 1. Okay? So 2m plus 1 is the form of any odd number. Now we're going to ask ourselves, we know that a squared is even. We're going to ask ourselves, how do we get an even square? What does the square root of an even square have to be if it's a perfect square? Not a concept we need at this point, but I'm just going to put it in as a kind of footnote. So let us ask what happens if we square 2m. 2m squared equals 2m times 2m equals what? Sorry, 2m squared equals 2m times 2m equals 4 m squared. 4m squared is actually 2 times 2 times m squared. What factor does it have? 2. Therefore, if you square an even number, again, this is duh, but if you square an even number, you get an even number. And we can show that. Square the number 2m, you get 4m squared or you get 2 times 2m squared, but 2 times any number is even. Okay, so square an even number, you get an even number. So a squared is even, therefore a could be even, because we know that if you square an even number, you get an even number. Now the question is, could a be odd? It certainly could be even. We're fine with that. Could it be odd? So now we will square 2m plus 1, and what we get when we do that is 2m times 2m equals distributive property, folks, 4m squared. 2m times 1 equals 1 times 2m equals and another ether 2m. All right. Um, and 1 times 1 equals 7. Good. <laughs> Minus 6 equals 1. So if we so we will combine terms. 2m plus 2m equals 4m plus 1. So square an odd number, and what we get is 4m squared plus 4m plus 1. We can do a little factoring now, which is probably the most efficient way to do this, and do it as 4 times m squared plus m plus 1. Okay, everyone see how I factored? I just moved the 4 outside the parentheses. 
So 4m squared plus 4m plus 1 is 4 times the quantity m squared plus m plus 1. 4m squared plus 4m is the same thing as 2 times 2 times m squared plus m. Right? So 2 times 2 times m squared plus m, even or odd? Uh, even. Plus even. even. Yeah, even. Add 1 to that even number and we get uh, odd number. So what happens when you square an odd number? Odd. Therefore, if a squared is even, and we know that squaring an even number gets you an even number, and we know that squaring an odd number gets you an odd number, if a squared is even, what is a? Even. Even. So a, so we have a result, a preliminary result. a is even. Okay? Wait, why did you have to prove that? Because you just told because the 2 is there? No, we knew a squared was even from the 2. We didn't know. I mean, yes, I told you these are baby steps. Um, we knew a squared was even. We've now shown that if a squared is even, so is a. Okay? We've also shown we know that b squared is odd because a squared over b squared, they were relatively prime. We know that b squared is odd. Um, so can b be even? No, because any even number squared is even. Can b be odd? Yes, because, any, because if you square an odd number, it's odd. So we know b squared is odd. So b can be odd, but it can't be even. So we've shown that a can be even if a squared is even, but it can't be odd. We've shown that b squared is odd, and therefore b can be odd, but it can't be even. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Look, we we've we've reduced a squared over b squared to simplest form. They could both be odd, or one could be odd and the other could be even, but they can't both be even. That's what it means to reduce a squared over b squared to simplest form. So now we look at the equation, we see that a squared equals 2b squared, which means a squared is even, b squared is not. So one is even, but the other isn't. We've already established they both can't be even because then they're not in simplest form. One is even, the other isn't. a squared is even, b squared is not. If a squared is even, a is even. That much we already know. Um, if b squared is not even, b is not even. You just say not even, so b is not even. So now we have b is odd. Because it's an integer, if it's not an even integer, it's an odd integer. Okay? Everyone still there? So b squared is odd and b is odd? Because b squared is odd, b is odd. No, we're not. <laughs>
<laughs> so yeah, so now we know at least something really important about the structure of the square root of 2. The structure of the square root of 2 is going to be an even number over an odd number. That's such a cool thing to learn. So now we can go home. Or not. So they went home for a while, but then lying in their bathtubs, <laughs> they suddenly realized, but wait a second. There's a problem here. Okay, so now here's the problem. B is odd, A is even. Let us put this now in the terms of the structure of odd and even numbers. So if B is odd, we can write 2B squared as 2 times 2n plus 1 squared. Okay? If a is even, then we can write it as equals, instead of writing a squared, we will write 2m squared. Notice this is an n that's an m. So we will write it as 2m squared. And we can now expand that into, without parens, 4m squared. OK? Everyone sees that? We took the, the standard structure for an even number, which is 2m. We squared 2m, and the result was we got 4m squared. Anyone have a qu any questions about that? We now have this equation. 2 times 2m plus 1 squared equals 4m squared. Again, these are baby steps. I didn't really have to do this part. Now what do you do when you have an equation of this sort? What's the first thing you do to simplify it? Divide both sides by? By 2. So if we divide both sides by 2, we get that we just erase. And what do we turn that 4 into? A 2. So now we have 2n plus 1 quantity squared equals 2 times m squared. Now we've already shown that if you square 2n plus 1, what kind of number do you get? Odd. Odd. So we'll just put in parentheses, this is an odd number. Okay, 2n plus 1 squared is an odd number. Now m was an integer. So m squared is an integer. It doesn't matter what integer it is. All that matters is it's an integer because m is an integer. m squared, therefore, is an integer. So 2 times whatever integer m squared is, is what kind of number? Even. Even. So this is an even number. So now the result that we get is that a number we have shown is odd is equal to a number we have shown is even. 
and that's when we despair. Yeah. Now, um, I don't think there is, but I could be wrong. I mean, you should always be able to tr um, translate um, algebra to geometry, but in this case, we're translating geometry to algebra. Um, so the intuitive way would, I mean, it's not intuitive, but the picture would be that whenever you um, try to lengthen the lines the same amount so that you'll get, you'll be able to fit um, um, equal portions of the shorter line you divide it up into however tiny um, line segments that you want. No matter how many tiny line segments you divide it into, um, you won't be able to overlay that on the hypotenuse so that there's no gap or, or um, so that it's, th that it's just the right length. Yeah. Joy. Well, Wait, no, never mind. It's not because it's still not number squared. Okay. Yeah. Okay, now I get it. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so the, the point is that it, if you write down the square root of 2 as A over B, you will have proved simultaneously that B, the denominator, is odd and that B is even. We've given equally good proofs that B is odd and that B is even. And that is, can't be. So B can't be. Um, and what that then means, the only give, the system seems to have hit a contradiction. Whenever a system hits a contradiction and yet we begin with truths and we follow the laws, true laws of inference, with exquisite care so we didn't make any mistakes, something has to give. And the question is, what gives? And the possibilities are the laws of inference are wrong. That is, we thought that we saw something clear, but we didn't. And the arithmetic doesn't work. But if that arithmetic doesn't work, no arithmetic is going to work. That's as basic arithmetic as you can do. If that arithmetic doesn't work, no arithmetic is going to work. So unless we throw out the laws of inference, which we could, there are people who will argue you should do that, that um, your math is too fancy even if you try to do this. But unless we throw out the laws of inference, the only other possibility is to throw out the idea that we can write A over B and have them both be integers when we're talking about the square root of 2. That is that if... Maybe this'll, this is um, a version of what you're saying, Abby, that if we measure the length of a side of an isosceles right triangle and we get an integer as the length of that side in whatever units, we pick a unit so that, we get the, so that the length of that side can be expressed as an integer, as an integral number of those units, we will never be able to do that for the hypotenuse and vice versa. Yeah. No, this is it. You know it. It's in your head. Oh, so there's no sheet for it? No. No, 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 no. So this was question one. How do you prove the square root of 2 is irrational? 
and that's ha that's how. There are other ways to do it, but unless you already know the other ways, um, don't go looking them up. Um, this is, I think, a way that you can practice while you're on the stir machine. It'll take a while, but you can do it on the stir machine. Okay, so but if and, the stir machine is an isosceles. Yeah, then 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 you will be in command of the irrationality of your own life. And really, what is education for except for that? I like that. Thank you. All right. Any questions about this? All right. Now. The thing that we proved on Monday, and which we're going to go on with a little bit today, the thing that we proved on Monday, I don't know why I keep writing on that board, um, but the thing that we proved on Monday was that you could not get the reals between 0 and 1 into 1 to 1 correspondence with the rationals between 0 and 1. But that you could get the rationals into 1 to 1 correspondence with the natural numbers. So remember how we did that? The first, if you start with 1, then and we're doing 0 to 1 inclusive, then the first natural number, namely 1, corresponds to the first number that you will list as you're listing all the rationals between 0 and 1. What's the first number you will list? 1. one. So 1 is in 1 to 1 correspondence with 1. What could be sweeter? So 1's in 1 to 1 correspondence with 1. The second number, 2, in the naturals is in one-to-one -one correspondence where you put into one-to-one -one correspondence with what rational between zero and one? One-half. So you write one, then you write one-half. Then you could write two halves, but you would immediately cross it out because you've already used that number. So the third number you would write down, so this is the third, net, so, so we are now putting the number 3, because it's the third number we're going to write down, into 1 to 1 correspondence with what number between 0 and 1? 1 third. Okay, everyone have that? Then the fourth number that you write down, again, number 4 in the, in the set of naturals that you're putting into 1 to 1 correspondence with the set of rationals, is what number? You've written down one, one-half, one-third. What comes next? Two-thirds. We skip three-thirds because that's the same as two-halves. It's the same as one-one-th. Right? A word that rhymes with month. And we now go to the quarters. So if two-thirds is the fourth, what's one-quarter? Two quarters we skip because we already had it in one half. Three quarters goes to what in the naturals? Does everyone see that? So everyone knows now how to construct a one-to-one -one correspondence between the rational numbers, those that can be written in a way that the square root of two can't be written as a over b, where a over b are integers. So you now see how you can draw a one-to-one -one correspondence 
from the natural numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 up to infinity and the rational numbers 1 half, 1 third, 2 thirds, 1 fourth, 3 fourths, 1 fifth, 2 fifths, 3 fifths, 4 fifths, 1 sixth, 5 sixths, etc. 1 seventh, 2 sevenths, 3 sevenths, 4 sevenths, 5 sevenths, 6 sevenths, and so forth. Everyone sees how to do that? Anyone not see? Okay, so thus we contour have shown that you can draw a one-to-one -one correspondence between the naturals and the rationals, and therefore there are as many rationals as there are between 0 and 1 as there are natural numbers, which means there are also as many rationals as there are whole numbers, as many rationals as there are even numbers, as many rationals as there are prime numbers, as many rationals as there are numbers which are multiples of 10, as many rationals as there are odd numbers, and so forth. Because those are all the same order of infinity. They can all be drawn, they can all be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with what is our useful standard for deciding one-to-one -one correspondence, which is the natural numbers. So that's just useful. Doesn't have to be the natural numbers. Has anyone ever programmed in basic? Only you? No one else has programmed in basic? You all just go straight to anybody, HTML? Anybody ever, anybody ever use a, a yeah, calculator? Yeah, I have. Okay, so when I first learned to program in like, what was it, 10th grade, I guess. Um, we learned in basic, and the first puzzle, which it actually took, took my nerd friend a little while to explain to me because he had no idea why I didn't get it, was why you number basic um, commands the way you do, which is the first, he, he, he showed me how to write a program, actually should, we, we, he showed me how to write a program to find prime numbers, and the first command was number 10, and the second command was number 20, and the third command was number 30. And I said, why are you numbering commands by 10? Why isn't the first command 1 and the second command 2 and the third command 3? Does anyone know? You don't know either? It's hilarious. Because basic, because basic numbers the commands for, basic orders the commands for you. So if you write the first command as number 10, and then you write 20, and then you realize you skipped a step, if you'd written 1 and 2, you'd have no place to put the step that you skipped. So you're giving yourself enough leeway to add nine commands between any two commands that you've written down in your first draft. That's why basic numbers, you don't have to. You can number the commands one, two, three, four, five, but then you'll want to shoot yourself um, because you'll make a mistake and you won't have any way to insert that command and you'll have to renumber everything. You know how, how Word is constantly, when you try to number things in Word, it assumes it knows what you're doing? That's what basic is like if you try to number the commands 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So you number them 10, 20, 30, or if you're doing a complicated program, 100, 200, 300. Um, all of those are in one-to-one -one correspondence with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so it doesn't matter. It's all one-to-one -one correspondence. All of life is one-to-one -one correspondence until you hit the irrational parts of life, and then it's all terrible. Okay, that's called adolescence. Okay, so 
Contour shows that the rationals can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with any other set that can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. Then what we looked at on Monday, and I'm going to try to show you a generalization of this now, or try to get you to see the generalization of it. But what we looked at on Monday was if you assumed that there was a way of listing all the numbers between 0 and 1, the irrationals as well as the rationals, you would find that you couldn't list them all. So do people remember how that worked? It's actually a simpler proof, I think, than the proof for the irrationality of the square root of 2. Um, does anyone not remember how it worked? So if I called on someone at random, they could show it on the board. Are you raising your hand? I don't remember. You do remember? I don't remember. You don't remember. Okay. So what we do, it's a little bit like with the square root of 2. We assumed that there was a number a over b where a and b were integers and that equaled the square root of 2. We assumed that. It turned out we were wrong. Now what we do, again, this is called a reductio ad absurdum. We assume something. We find that by assuming it, we get absurd consequences. We get a contradiction. So if you think something is true, and thinking that it's true leads to a contradiction, then you have proved that it's false. That kind of proof is called a reductio ad absurdum. A proof that something is false by showing that if you assume it's true, you get a contradiction. So Contour says, let's assume it's true that there is some way to put all the numbers between 0 and 1, including the irrationals, into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. And all that means is whatever the numbers are, um, n, n sub 1, n sub 2, n sub 3, n sub 4, n sub 5, etc., whatever they are, they can put into one-to-one -one correspondence very easily with 1, 2, and in general, um, whatever the subscript is, plus 1, n plus 1. Okay? That is, n goes to 1, n sub 1 goes to 2, n sub 2 goes to 3, and so forth. Or if we just more intelligently do it as n sub 1, n sub 2, n sub 3, n sub 4, n sub 5, n sub 6, they go to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So Cantor says, I haven't figured out a way to do that. I've tried and tried, but I haven't figured out a way to do that. But if there's a way, then there is one-to-one -one correspondence, which is what I want to show. So let's, he now says, assume that there's some way to do it, and it can be maximally weird. It doesn't have to follow any pattern that I can make sense of. It can just spray all over the place as far as pattern goes. And I would have no idea what the pattern is. So what I'm going to do 
is assume that there's no pattern that I can see, that it looks totally random to me. Um, in fact, it won't be totally random if there is one-to-one -one correspondence, and there has to be some procedure for constructing it. But I don't need to show, I don't need to construct it. All I need to know is whether God could construct it, whether there's some way of constructing it. So let's write the numbers in decimal form between 0 and 1 in some order that looks random. But if there is one-to-one -one correspondence, then there'll be some order that we would write them in. Maybe more than one, but at least one. So the way you could do it is to say all numbers between 0 and 1 in their decimal expansion will be followed by digits. And we don't need to know what the digits are. All we need to know is they're going to be followed by digits. So we can say digit 1, digit 2, digit 3, digit 4, digit 5, dot, 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 to digit infinity. You could do it with variables as well. You could do it with letters. Yeah. Um, you could go through all 26 or whatever. Um, if it's decimal, you only need 10. But it doesn't matter. Or you can do it with numerals. So if we do it with A, B, C, D, E, F, G um, to infinity, there'll be some repetition when the same numerals are there. The second digit might be A, B, A, D, E, F, G to infinity. The third one might be, um, I don't know, um, B, H, O, I, S, um, no, there would be no S. I don't know. BHO is great. I don't know what to say. Um, BHO is from Kenya. Um, up to infinity. But he says, just for the sake of um, clarity, let's just say it will look something like this. 3, 2, 3, 9, 4, 6, dot, dot, dot. And then after that, 9, 9, 1, 8, 9, 1, 2, dot, dot, dot. Then after that, 6, 2, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, dot, dot, dot. Remember that self-describing number? Um, doesn't matter. These are extras in the movie of this proof. So it doesn't matter, just as long as there are digits. So now we assume that we've listed them all. And we've listed them all in the same way that we have listed all the natural numbers. What does that mean? It means take the infinite set of natural numbers, take the infinite set of decimals, that correspond to all the real numbers between 0 and 1. Take those two sets and see if you can put them into one-to-one -one correspondence. That's all it means. So you can have, in the same way that you can have an infinite list of natural numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, dot, 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 and you can start listing them as long as you put a dot, dot, dot in your list, you can have an infinite set of reals that correspond to them. 
So if you have all the natural numbers, if you say here's my notation for all the natural numbers for the entire set, 1, 2, 3, dot, 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 you can then say, and here's my notation for everything in one-to-one -one correspondence with that, 10, 20, 30, dot, 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 or 2, 4, 6, dot, 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 or 1, 3, 5, dot, 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 or 2, 3, 5, dot, 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 or 0, 1, 2, dot, dot, dot. Doesn't matter. If you can put them into one-to-one -one correspondence, the dot, dot, dots essentially mean the same thing there. What they mean is, and so on until we, um, and so on, that and so on defining the entire list. To give another example of what's a very easy one-to-one -one correspondence, we say one, two, three, four, dot, 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 is in one-to-one -one correspondence with one factorial, two factorial, three factorial, four factorial, dot, dot, dot. Um, those are very easy. Even though one factorial is one, two factorial is two, three factorial is six, four factorial is 24, um, we now have one-to-one -one correspondence between those two lists. All numbers factorial, all numbers, they're in one-to-one -one correspondence. You know this because I've ranted about this every other week this semester. So now we do that with the reals. I'm going to ask you a little question to see if you can puzzle this out in a minute. And now, says Contour, we assume we have them all. So 1, 2, 3, dot, dot, dot. OK, we assume we have them all. Now the question is, do we have them all or not? If we do have them all, then it's one-to-one -one correspondence. In the same way that we did have all the numbers, one-half, one-third, two-thirds, one-fourth, three-fourths, one-fifths, two-fifths, there we do have them all. The question is, now do we have them all here? Or is there a number? Can, like Pascal, someone show you something not in that original list? And Contour says, yes, indeed, I can. They, don't call, they shouldn't call me Contour. They should call me Can-or. What? Can-do-or. Can-do-or. Can-do-or, because he's a very candid person. OK. So show me, as Tom Cruise might say, show me a number not on that list. Yes. Yes. So if, I so if I take a number which is constructed by going diagonally down the list of numbers, okay, so let's take this number, 0 0.390 dot dot dot. That number could easily be on the list. No problem with having that number on that list. But if instead, for every digit in that number, I add 1 modulo 10, which is to say that if I get to 9, I go back to 0. If in every digit in that number I add 1, then instead of 390, I have 401, dot, 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 a new number. 
Now, I can show you that that new number is not on the list. How can I show it to you? Because the way I constructed it, it can't be on the list because its nth digit is going to be taken from the nth digit of the nth number down this list. That's going to be the basis for its nth digit. The basis for its first digit is what digit? Three. So the basis of its one-th digit, I really want you to rhyme this at some point in your life. The basis of its one-th digit is the one-th digit of the one-th number. Or as we say in English, the basis for its first digit is the first digit of the first number. But it's not the same as the first digit of the first number. Because the first digit of the first number is? Three. And this is? Four. Yay! The basis for the second digit is the second digit of the second number. But is it the same as the second digit of the second number? Nuh-uh. Because the second digit of the second number is? And the second digit of our, of our number is? The basis for the third digit of our number is the third digit of the third original number. So notice that what's happening is this number one is telling you go one digit in when you construct your new number. This number two is telling you go two digits in when you construct your new number. This number three is telling you go three digits in when you construct the third digit of your new number. So in each case, the third digit of the original third number is zero. The third digit of our new number, wherever it appears on the list, let's say it appears at 500 on our list, the third digit of this number, which should appear somewhere on the list if we've listed them all, the third digit of the third number is one rather than zero. So let's say it's just number 500 on the list. The problem is, the 500th number here will have as its 500th digit some number between 0 and 9. But this, the 500th digit of this number, will be what? One larger, One larger than the 500th number on this list. The 500th digit of our number will differ from the 500th digit of the 500th number here by 1. And in general, any digit in this number, the nth digit, the mth digit, the pth digit, the qth digit, the zth digit, any digit, will differ from that same number, nth or pth or qth or zth, in the nth or pth or qth or zth number on our list. So if you think you have a complete list, which is what it would mean to have the entire set of the reals in one-to-one -one correspondence, with the entire set of the naturals. I can always show you a number that it 
cannot be on that list. Simply can't be. So you can't have that complete set. Even if it's infinite, that infinite set can't, that complete infinite set can't be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the counting numbers. Yeah? Okay, I'm not, I'm just kind of clarifying on this for the bomb, but you say it's larger, because you always find another number that's not on this list. Yeah. But you can do the same thing with the example numbers. How do you do that? You can always add one. Yeah, but now we assume that we, that, that in our godlike stance, which is always one step ahead. See, this is the thing that doing this does. It says, no matter what's between these brackets, I got it. Okay? So that's just the idea of set theory. If you talk about the natural numbers, that's something that makes sense. We have a definition, the natural numbers. Sure, that makes sense. They go on forever, but still, we know what direction they go in. It makes sense. We know the natural numbers. So we just put this around, not saying that there isn't infinity with, between these two things, but saying that nevertheless, we're talking about them all. Okay? An infinite number, but we're talking about them all. So that's what putting these brackets around means. So if we say natural numbers, and we're talking about them all, what that means is even numbers, and we're talking about them all can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence. Even though they're an infinite number. In fact, only because they're an infinite number. Yeah, yeah I get that, but I don't see why the fact they can be put in one-to-one -one correspondence and those can't. I know there's two different qualities of the set, but why does that necessarily make that larger? I don't, like, qualitatively. qualitatively. Okay, so, you know, do you want to answer that, Amanda? a new number, but you already have your set, and you've already put it in what you believe is a one-to-one -one correspondence, but since you keep creating new numbers, where can you put those new numbers? You already have your set. So they can't be in the set, but they are in the set because they are technically between zero and one. Okay, so we'll just give it as a definition then. What she says, but here's how we can give it as a definition. You're right to say, why would you call that larger? And again, it's, on, it's like, why do we call negative 1 smaller than 1, which is one of the first questions that we asked in this class. Um, it seems obvious if you're taught the number line. Um, but you might also say it's by convention that we say going left on the number line means the same thing as talking about smaller numbers. Really, it only means that intuitively until you get to 0. Then it's a little bit harder to say that negative 1 is smaller than 0. Not quite as hard to say that it's less than zero. Because if you say it's less than zero, what it means is if you add one to it, it you'll get to zero. If you add one to that, you'll get to one. So you know, if you think of temperatures or something, less than is actually probably a more accurate term than smaller than. OK, but still, we've internalized that. We say negative one is smaller than zero in the same way that 1 half is smaller than one. In another way, that's just not true. Um, you, you, don't talk, you don't say, well, a budget deficit of a trillion dollars is obviously smaller than a budget deficit of $23. Um, 
But you might, if you're talking to the right politicians, they might try to make that argument. Um, okay, so in the same way, what you're asking is, why would you say that a set which contains more, or, well, a set which can't be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers, because there are extras left over, what makes us say that's bigger? What, to me, it seems that. Well, except that what this, the only thing that the same size can mean is one-to-one -one correspondence. If you're talking about infinite sets, that's what the same that's what the term the same size means. Okay. Um, and what's useful about that is that that's what the term the same size means in any set is one-to-one -one correspondence. The set of um, um, I don't know, heads and the set of hearts in this room are in one-to-one -one correspondence because everyone in this room has a, yeah, everyone in this room has a head um, and I'm assuming everyone in this room has a heart. Um, also assuming nobody is a time lord. Yeah. Um, so the set, so one-to-one, -one, so, so our common phrase, the same size, when we're talking about numbers, these numbers are the same size, what that means is we're talking about two sets that can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. Um, so we just use that idea. If you ask, what does it mean for things to be the same size, it means they're in one-to-one -one correspondence with each other, even geometrically. That is, that if you take units of measurement, if they're the same size, it'll be the same number of units of measurement. So our, our um, intuitive and informal idea of two things being the same size if you tighten that a little bit, it means two things that can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. Same thing. But now if we talk about infinite sets, which we have to because numbers don't run out, the only way we can talk about the same size is by using the more formal idea of one-to-one -one correspondence. But now there's a separate question, which is what would make you say that if you can show the two sets are not in one-to-one -one correspondence with each other, that one is larger than the other? Why not? You know, where do we get the idea that it's larger? And here we would say that our informal view of what it means for something to be larger than something else is that after you put one set into correspondence with the other, you've used up all the elements of one set, but there are still elements left over in the other set. So how do we know that there are more seats than people in this room? We don't have to count. You can tell. Simply by looking that there are more seats than people, how can you tell? Because there are empty chairs. Because everyone but me is seated, I can seat myself. <gasps> There's still empty chairs. So that means we've put people, sitting down is putting yourself into one-to-one -one correspondence with a chair. You've done that, but there are chairs left over. So informally, and reasonably formally, we say more chairs than people, and Therefore, our idea of more is stuff left over after you've put everything you can put into one-to-one -one correspondence. And the set with stuff left over is bigger. That's our definition of bigger. These are not easy terms to define, bigger and smaller. Remember, Plato said 
that he, or Socrates, Plato has Socrates say he went into philosophy because he couldn't figure out what it meant when Bob and Alice, when Alice was a head taller than Bob, which meant that each differed from the other by a head, so they were the same, because each was different from the other in the same way that the other was different from the first. They were the same. So, but they obviously weren't, so what did that mean? So Socrates went into philosophy, according to Plato, who made this part up, but Socrates went into philosophy because he freaked himself out in the way that I've occasionally tried to freak you out by asking you about mirrors and such like. He freaked himself out by saying, here's the simplest idea in the world. Alice is taller than Bob by a certain amount, namely a head. And as soon as I try to explain to myself what that means, I get lost. I can't do it. I can't quite make sense of that. So philosophy, as Plato and Aristotle both said, again, I'm repeating myself, but it's important to remember this, begins in wonder. That is, things seem obvious until you look at them, and then suddenly you don't get it. It all makes sense until you look at it. Sorry? Let's not forget about height, though. If each differs from the other by the size of a head, then what's the difference between them? So you can get into a mood where that's a question. And then Socrates has an answer, which is there's the platonic realm which transcends all human experience, and that's why. But we have some access to it through, through memory. Yeah? Or you could just say that philosophy as, as, as its essence is only is a question of language rather than of wonder. Yeah. yeah. But then the question is, how does language connect to the world? Right. Um, does it connect to the world? How does it connect to the world? Um, what is it about language that seems to make it transparent? What is it about language that prevents that transparency from actually being something that we can ignore the way we ignore genuinely transparent things? And there you are back in philosophy. And there you are back in philosophy. All right, so now what we know is I can use up all the natural numbers by listing them all. And... I can put them into one-to-one -one correspondence with a whole lot of real numbers, but there'll always be more real numbers that are not there, that are not. I've used up all the natural numbers up to infinity, but I got real numbers left over. In fact, an infinite number of real numbers left over. In fact, um, two to the number of natural numbers, real numbers left over, which is something we looked at briefly on Monday. So that means that it's not the same order of infinity, and because in common language we say if there's stuff left over, it belongs to a bigger set, we will call that a bigger set. There's no harm in calling it a bigger set, because what it means is if anyone gives us an Aleph sub naught set and asks us to put into, into correspondence with elements of our, of our set, we can always do it. But if someone gives us our set and says, try to put this into one-to-one -one correspondence to some other infinite set, we know there's at least one infinite set that we won't be able to do, namely the set of naturals. So it's just a capacity for doing stuff. Now, there's more to say here. One more thing to say is... Notice how we're back at Aristotle's distinction, which I don't think any of you got right on your quiz, 
between infinity by addition and infinity by division. Infinity by addition is how many natural numbers are there. That's really what it is. Take a natural number, add another natural number to it, and what your answer is, a natural number. So add two any natural numbers together. You will always stay within the set of natural numbers. And therefore, infinity by addition will always keep you within the set of natural numbers. Infinity by division is what we've been doing by looking at all the numbers between 0 and 1. That is to say, all the reals between 0 and 1 which is to say every point on the number line between 0 and 1, including the points that correspond to irrational numbers. So if we divide 0 to 1 between 0 and 1 at every point, what we are doing is infinity by division. And that's a larger order of infinity than infinity by addition. So Aristotle's intuition that there are two different kinds of infinity here gets borne out. And not only does it get borne out, it really turns out there are two different kinds of infinity. Different orders of infinity. Infinity by addition and infinity by division. Now, let's think for a second about the concept of a list. What a list is, is something where you go from one item, and here's the crucial word, to the next item. Next is the crucial word in the idea of a list. You list something, and you can go down item to item to item down the list. That idea of next is also the idea in counting. The next number after one is two. The next Number, next natural number after 2 is 3. Next natural number after 3 is 4. So the idea of nextness, nextity, nextitude, nextree, I don't know, the idea of the next. Yes, that's the crucial idea. So what the natural numbers capture is the idea of the next. Anything that can be listed as something followed by the next thing followed by the next thing can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. Right there. Okay? Yes, you are. The reals cannot be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. What that means is that if you take any real number between 0 and 1, what there isn't is a next number. Because the number of points between any two numbers where one is next after another are infinite. So the real numbers cannot be listed in such a form that we can talk about the next number after we've talked about some number. In particular, we cannot talk about the next number after 0. 
so that one puzzle that Aristotle raises, we can now answer, which is if the train leaves at noon, is it moving at noon or is it not moving at noon? The answer is we don't say it moves at the next instant after noon because there is no next instant. Or if there is a next instant, that would be a rational amount of time after noon. But between noon and the first rational measure of time after noon, there are an infinite number of times, none of which can be said to be next after the previous one. So we have two orders of the infinitesimal. One is the infinitesimal, the rational infinitesimal, which is incredibly tiny, infinitely tiny. And yet, there's an infinity of even smaller tininesses beyond 1 over infinity. And it's there where the question, what happens next, loses its meaning because the word next loses its meaning. Next, we can consider Achilles and the tortoise. And we can say, because it's really the same issue, we can say that the way Zeno put the question of Achilles and the tortoise was to say, at T1, the tortoise is ahead of Achilles. And they run, and the tortoise gets ahead, and Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, etc that wherever, whenever Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise has gone ahead. Now, what Contour is showing is that this way of putting it is to say, at every point, the tortoise is ahead. So at the next point, the tortoise will also be ahead. That is, Zeno's presentation of the race between Achilles and the tortoise requires within it the concept of next. Each time it requires within it the concept of next. Yeah? It's, it's an inductive argument that he's doing. Which always requires the concept of next. Right. Exactly. So Contour has now shown that there are an infinite number of places that Achilles can pass the tortoise between any two points where we look at Achilles and the tortoise and see the tortoise is ahead, and the next point where Zeno thought he would still be ahead, but Contour has shown, no, there are an infinite number of places where the concept of next doesn't apply, where Achilles could pass the tortoise. Further point, we're not going to be able to show, as I had hoped to, but I'll just um, tell you that the way to do this is to look how to show a power set is always greater than the set that it's a power set of, is try to put into one-to-one -one correspondence each member of the original set with each subset in the power set, and you'll come upon a similar issue. But here's the last point. You could still say, yeah, but infinity by addition, how long will I have to be in hell? That is, is time all of sub-zero, or is there a longer order of infinity than eternity? Can there be a time longer than eternity? 
And this is something that someone has proposed recently, which I think is really sweet, um, which is remember what we said. This is obviously you don't need to know any of this, but you, you do need to know it because it's so cool, about what we said about the constancy of the speed of light. That is, the speed of light never in a vacuum never gets beyond 186,000 miles per second. And at that speed, anything going that speed, time will stop. We will see time stopped there. So there's an idea now in speculative physics that if someone is going at the speed of light with respect to us long enough, that is, after time has stopped for an eternity, then stuff will happen. And that will be when we move into a higher order of infinity, even in the passage of time. There was a, a sci-fi show, not, I feel like pre-teens, two years ago, and on some channel that I used to watch, there was an episode about that where one of the characters started moving at the speed of light. So she thought that time had just frozen, but what yeah. it actually was was things were just moving, you know, infinitely slower compared to where she yeah. was. Yeah, right. Good. Neat. Yeah. I'm a little confused on the last question we're final. Yes. Do you want us to prove why there's more than one order? Yes. That's not more than one order. Yeah, but do we have to mention that, or do we just have to put a one-to-one correspondence? Well, if you prove that there isn't one-to-one correspondence between the reals and the rationals, you've proved there's more than one order of infinity. So that's how you prove it. Okay, I'll send you an email reminding you. Have you ever heard of the Oh My God particle? Remind me.